I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Irish Economics Podcast. Uh, I have a really interesting episode lined up today with Will Quinn of Queens in Belfast, where we discuss financial markets. In particular, we go through stock market bubbles. Uh, We discuss the British bicycle mania, something which up until now I've been unfamiliar with. We talk about big shorts, savvy James Bond villains who have resorted to shady stock market trades, and some other cool stories and nice insight that help explain the complicated trades that go on in the stock market. So it's interesting in the sense that we have some nice stories, but also some nice ways of understanding some of the stuff that goes on in the financial markets. Hopefully we'll have an episode at a later date where we can dig a bit deeper into financial markets in particular. A bit of housekeeping before we kick off. Um, Some of you have inquired about ways to support the podcast and help cover costs. Most of the costs have been covered by my own pocket and there's been a growing gap uh, as things have gone on. If you'd like to chip in, I've set up a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash irishiconpod. There's absolutely no obligation in terms of uh, chipping in. Uh, it's very much this podcast feed is public good and in general, I'm pretty happy to cover the costs, but perhaps the Patreon might help keep that at a sustainable level. Um, I'm also working on a bonus feed for Patreons where we shine an economic torch on maybe some lighter topics, such as things like online dating and blockbuster movies. So that could be uh, of interest if you want to check that out. However, as I said already, the main podcast feed, I see it as a public good and it'll always be free. So, okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Irish Economics Podcast. Uh, I'm joined by William Quinn, who is a lecturer in finance at Queen's University Belfast. Uh, Will is an expert on financial booms and busts. Having done extensive research in this area, he's written a book entitled Boom and Bust, A Global History of Financial Bubbles with his colleague John Turner. Um, Booms and busts have been occurring throughout history and appear to be happening more frequently and this book gives some insight into why they happen and the consequences. Uh, Will has also done some digging into the British bicycle bubble of the 1890s, which is a very interesting story that we will also explore. So, Will, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks. Hope you're keeping well in the in the lockdown. Yes, not too bad. And yourself? Not too bad. Yeah, um, home studio all set up here, so it should be it should be all right. Um, uh, good. So okay, when we were talking about uh, booms and busts, um, 
what exactly are they and how did it come about? Uh, I'm boom and bust it. Essentially, um, it's actually really controversial. So different economists have a, a different idea of what causes them, especially. Um, so if, if you talk about a boom and bust, um, generally that just means, uh, like in financial markets, that just means that, that the price rises and then the price falls by a lot. But when you start talking about a financial bubble, it gets really controversial and there is no really fully accepted definition. So for a definition, we'll just say a, a financial bubble is um, a, a very large rise in prices followed by a, a large fall in prices. Um, and sometimes you find when you look into it that there's nothing really strange going on. That All that happened was that the, the value of the asset rose for perfectly sensible reasons and then it fell for other perfectly sensible reasons. Mm. Um, but although there was sort of like in general life, most people wouldn't call that a bubble. Like you wouldn't say there was um, an oil price bubble if there were sort of some events impacting on the price of oil. We just go from there and um, use that as our definition. And if we find that it's not really what, what most people would describe as a bubble, then that's okay. So my idea of a bubble would be that the price rises and maybe falls again. But the change in price doesn't reflect the underlying value. That's that's how most people would think of a bubble, and that is really the the I, I suppose what you would say that the real definition is. The problem then is like the, the true the, the the true value of an asset is unobservable. It's based on like estimates of future cash flows, which you can sort of like like look at in the long term and say that those cash flows weren't realized, but that doesn't mean that they couldn't have been realized so so if you take the dot-com bubble for example that there's a lot of companies that were valued very highly and very quickly went bust mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that they were always going to go bust so i actually you'll never be able to prove that um, the price of the asset exceeded its fundamental value and therefore you can't actually ever really um, call something a bubble not with any certainty anyway so you can't really prove first definite whether a bubble happened or not have you been able to explore what caused the bubble yeah we did yes so we came up with it we, we came up with a model it's a it's a fairly um an informal model um we, we called it the bubble triangle based on the fire triangle you know that the fire triangle from chemistry i don't <laughs> maybe you could taught, taught this in school it it's a long time since i've done chemistry <laughs> Yeah, um, it must be a northerner thing. Um, we were, in school, we were taught the, the, the fire triangle, which is that um, a fire begins when you have uh, well, the three points of the triangle, which are um, oxygen, fuel, and heat. Oh, yeah, sure. Whenever you get, whenever all of those three elements are present uh, and, you have, and, and, and you then have a spark, a little ignition, then you, you get a fire. So we came up with uh, something um, based on that, which we called the bubble triangle. Right. Um, and the three the three sides of it were so marketability, which is, is linked to liquidity. You get a bubble in uh, assets that can be easily bought and sold, and you very often find that before a bubble, you see an increase in marketability. Okay. That some assets that were previously um, quite a liquid, quite hard work to buy and sell, um, suddenly become very easy to buy and sell. So there's something like mortgage-backed securities. You, you take mortgage loans, which are 
very, very liquid assets that, that belong to the bank and they can't get rid of them easily. And then you repackage them into securities that can be bought and sold in secondary markets. Nice. That's an increase in marketability. Second side then is uh, money and credit. So this is very widely observed that you you are much more likely to get a bubble whenever um, there, it, it's easy to borrow money where you can sort of like invest in a, a risky asset with someone else's money quite easily. Okay. Um, and also when there's abundant money, so um, low interest rates uh, cl- closely linked with the emergence of bubbles. Uh, and then the, f- the final point of the triangle is speculation, which is this uh, probably the, the most difficult one to measure. But this strategy of uh, buying and sell, uh, bu- buying uh, an asset because you expect its price to rise, rather than for its future cash flows. Sure. Um, and this this is always present. So, so similar to, um, yeah, it's, it's similar to heat. And um, I think we think we thought thought oxygen was closest to money, because um, you know money is essential and um, it's a good thing in most contexts. But you, you, know, you can't have too much of it um, in certain circumstances. Um, but we had, had speculation as as heat and. Um, Essentially, this is sort of what causes the prices to rise, or we we judge to be beyond fundamental values. It is usually this: uh, a lot of people pursuing the strategy of buying and selling um, the the financial asset, or by just buying the asset because they think its price is rising, or because they think its price is going to rise. So again, like closely linked to momentum trading as well. Sure. Um, so. So, so those are the three points then, uh, and then we find that the spark in the all of the bubbles we looked at, the spark only came from one of two places. Um, so the first one was technology. Again, this was very widely observed um, before that, that bubbles are closely linked with new technologies. So you know, the, the dot com bubble, the, the the bicycle mania, um, which I looked at, they're all linked to sort of serious technological developments that. Um, you know, could create a lot of excitement, often create very high initial profits at uh, existing firms that use that technology, get a lot of growth, get, get a lot of uncertainty. So um, the, these assets become um, very, very difficult to value, which makes them you know, ideal for speculating. Um, yeah. And then the other source of a spark that we found was uh, politics. So you would get um, deregulation often um, would sort of uh, um, create this initial uh, rise in prices that that attracts momentum traders. Uh, Or or you could have like specific policies that are designed to uh, increase asset prices, uh, usually because it uh, benefits the a group in society that, that the ruling party or the ruling coalition um, requires in order to keep power. So, so homeowners, for example, um, very often homeowners are a, a key part of a, a political coalition. And if you manage to increase the price of housing somehow, then you're, you're redistributing wealth towards your, um, your your own political coalition. Yeah, uh, which is. Uh, obviously, you know, one of the 
so the key, key planks of holding on to power. It's it's interesting because it, it sort of strikes me that you have a sort of an equilibrium and then something there's a little bit of a change and then people respond perhaps over respond um if you have say like a mortgage has changed to mortgage backed securities and then you have a lot of liquidity people can people can afford to respond people are able to respond and this sort of that that's what can sort of spark the departure from from, from the value so the most famous model of bubbles um previously was um Charles Kindleberger's, which is again very informal. It's not something that could be quantified. It's 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 actually like like a cycle, like like a, he describes it in I think five stages. And the first of his stages of a bubble, he calls displacement, which is exactly what you describe. Just this sort of event that changes things and kicks it off. Maybe we can go into uh, the British cycle mania and just discuss. How that came about, and then might help put some flesh in the bones. Uh huh. So you, you did a lot of research into um, this British, the British bicycle boom. Maybe you could just give us some background as to how it came about and what what the whole s- scenario was like. Because we all think of of bicycles as being there and have been there forever, but the bicycle as we know it today is only really a hundred year, well, a little over a hundred years old. So previously, if you think of bicycles in the nineteenth century. And probably imagine um, these uh, like penny farthings, right? Yeah. With the the, the giant front wheel and the, um, the, the the sort of very basic frame. Um, these were pretty terrible. Um, they, they were very, very dangerous. So um, yeah. I can imagine if you fall off a penny farthing, it's it's a long way to the ground. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And. Um, that they don't have any suspension, that they don't have pneumatic tires, um, so that they, they, they just sort of rattle along very uncomfortably. That mm. the most comfortable model, or, or a model that was sort of famously one of the best penny farthings, was nicknamed the Bone Shaker. Yeah. Um, because it was j- just so so difficult to ride and so uncomfortable, um, and these were you know they they would often hit potholes on the roads and people would go over the handlebars a lot. Yeah, and roads wouldn't be the same as what we're used to nowadays. Right, exactly. There there were a lot a lot of potholes out there. Um, so so they weren't very good. They weren't very widely used. I, I sort of compare them to like segways. You sort sort of you'd see them the same type of person who would ride a Segway today. <laughs> right, okay, okay. That puts it into context. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so they weren't very widely used. That they, they weren't very popular. And in the 1880s, you, you suddenly see a lot of um, rapid improvements. So, so, so you get the, the, the pneumatic tyre and you get uh, the, the diamond frame, so the same structure, the same shape of bicycle that we see today. Right, okay. Um, the the chain, so, so the, the chain means that uh, you, you know you don't need this giant front wheel anymore. Okay, so the chain, the chain seems to be really that was a really important development in that. We're we're we're, we're moving into uh, physics now, but it, it's sort of like a lever, isn't it? In that you, yeah. don't, need, don't, you don't need the big front wheel, um, makes life a lot easier when it comes to pedaling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. One of the main early companies was called the lever chain because that that's what it was doing. It was it was acting as a lever, just um. Eliminating the need for this l- large front wheel. Right. Okay. Um, so, so within a few years, I, I had some pictures of this, which I we were going to put in, put in the book, but we we couldn't find the copyright for them. Um, 
but but you just see that very starkly that from between about about 18 you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today and about 1886, you go from the penny farthing design to something which... It basically looks exactly the same as bicycles today. Right. Um, and that's when, just a few years after that, um, when, when sort of people realize uh, just how good these machines are and how useful they really are, you get uh, a cycling craze. Okay. So, so all of a sudden, everybody is buying, like bikes are the thing to have. And it's a bit like maybe smartphones taking off. All of a sudden, within a year or two, everybody has one. Right, exactly, yeah. So what I looked at then, so this is around 1895. Um, you see, you see this, this sudden uh, increase in demand for bicycles. Uh, and what I looked at in the British Bicycle Mania, um, I, I don't know a lot about bikes. My research was all into the, the um, a resulting bubble in the shares of bicycle companies. Right. Which runs from, it starts uh, very, very rapidly in... 1896, uh, and so sort of stays high until about a year later in 1897, and uh, prices stay high, uh, and then very gradually falls. Prices very gradually fall for about um, 10 years after that. So at this point, so, so everybody's buying bikes, and so everybody wants to invest in a bike company, and the value of the shares go up. Is that pretty much the idea? Yeah, pretty much. So, so they are making a lot of money. Um, and this sort of obviously causes the share prices to rise by a lot. And you also get some mergers, some high-profile mergers. So uh, the, the, the Dunlop company is formed with a new capitalization. It's bought out and refloated for um, a much higher sum. 
this obviously means that this means spectacular profits for uh, early investors, people that had, had bought into these bicycle shares early. Uh, and this is what attracts people. Sure. So, so just to maybe take a step back. So all these companies are floated on the stock exchange, um, presumably to, to maybe to raise capital to develop a bit further. And then there's trading going on. It's like secondary trading between individuals based on what they expect the value of the company to be. Yeah, exactly. So, so they're, they're traded on the, on the, the markets. Like, and uh, uh, th- there are some companies already trading. Uh, and the, these are the ones that initially experienced that this boom in, in, in share prices. Whenever, whenever you get when you get a, a boom in share prices, it, it makes capital cheaper for any new companies that want to come in. Right, okay. Uh, because a high level in the equity market means a high willingness essentially for investors to buy shares um, and if a lot of people are willing to buy shares uh, it's going to be cheaper to raise money that way uh, so a lot of private firms like a lot of private firms just float on the stock market to raise more money so okay so because one or two firms that are there are getting good price for the shares that means it, it other companies are looking around and saying well if we float we can get this, this that price that they're getting putting the economist hat on you would think that if more companies come in that that would have drive the price down but that that is exactly right yeah um no and i think that that's one of the main puzzles in a lot of bubbles including the, the british bicycle mania right um because so so i say, say that the 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 bubble lasts or sure prices stay high for about a year um and at the early stage there's only a few companies and some of them are you know making a lot of money so the prices do still look high, but if you squint a bit, they, they, they don't look ridiculous, right? Right, okay. Um, but then 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 a year later, in 1897, these prices are still high, but you have hundreds and hundreds of companies trading on the stock market. Right. And um, you have the, the exact puzzle that you identified there, is that, that why are prices still rising, even though you know, the, the supply of shares is just continues to rise? Yeah. Um, which obviously is eventually eventually there is a crash but t- take a little longer than you would expect so in one of your papers I, re- I read there that you were discussed this issue of myopic rationality and maybe you could explain what that means would that be one explanation as to why the prices stayed higher than, than maybe than maybe you might think they would be myopic rationality yes yeah. so, so this is um, Gareth Campbell this is his idea right he wrote a paper about myopic rationality in the railway mania so it's not a debate that i particularly like or that i think is useful but but the, one of the main debates on um, financial bubbles is whether they're uh, rational or not um and gareth's contribution is to say like it's a, a sort of more nuanced um approach to that i say that um Investors have their pricing models uh, that, that that they that they use, and they tend to work well, um, at least up to the railway mania, and would still work well in the 1890s at the time of the um, bicycle mania. And these models are essentially based on dividends. So you look at what the current dividends are, the, the way you know technology firms are today, where where they don't pay much dividends at all. This was very rare at the time, so dividends were a pretty good measure of how profitable the firm was and um, the, all of the pricing models were based on the current level of dividends 
Um, and what he says was that you know this is myopic rationality. It's like it, it's it, it's rational in the sense that it makes sense. It's it's sort of logically consistent, but but it's also myopic in that yeah, it's short-sighted that they can't see very far into the future, so they they have no idea what the price is going to be next year, or the uh, the year after that, or what the, the dividend payments are going to be yeah. um, next year or the year after that. Uh, and therefore, you know, their the pricing models um, don't work in these circumstances. Yeah. But but that, that's not the same as saying that they're, they're irrational. Um, and I, I think this is one of the reasons I don't like this debate is that I think irrational is, is quite poorly defined. Sure. Um, so people would, would disagree on, on what constitutes rational or irrational behavior. Um, uh, but in the sense it's not you know for some people irrational seems like crazy and it's not crazy it's just um you're short-sighted or, or you're using a, a pricing model which you can't apply yeah sure you don't have full information um because that that makes sense right, yeah that makes sense to me because if you think about it you're on the threshold of this new technology you don't know what's coming down the line you only have the only information you have at your hand at at to hand is what's been happening today or tomorrow or maybe in the last year or so. So based on that and you project for, even if you did sort of project forward from there, you think, well, the only way is up. <laughs> now we know with the experience of the last few years, that isn't our dot-com bubbles or even, <laughs> we know that, that that's not always the case, but um, I can see how it could happen. Definitely. Yeah. And as I say, it's, 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 it's an example of this sort of key reason why uh, bubbles are associated with technology is uncertainty. Um, and so in some of my papers, I value that there are, there are various explanations for why technology is linked to bubbles, but they all agree that uncertainty plays a major role, just that they, these assets are just very difficult to value correctly. Especially back then where, you know, you didn't have the same access to information that we have now. Um, you really, you had to really dig hard to find, to, to do your research, whereas nowadays well there's probably too much information with the internet that you, it's very hard it's hard to find the good information but um even the dot-com bubble which is on the threshold of of internet yeah definitely and the, the other thing the, the other thing about, about bubbles um so in f- finance we normally talk about the the, the 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 limited participation puzzle so most of the time it's kind of seems irrational that like that more people don't invest in stocks right so, so these bubbles are really like like aberrations. This very very rare instance where people are investing more money in stocks than they should. But but as I said, it's an aberration. We, we sort of everyone sort of knows, and maybe they can, can look down on people that lose money in a bubble. But it's actually a much much more common mistake to not invest enough. De- definitely, the more you look at it, you, you sort of um, become become more and more sympathetic towards the, these investors. That that you know that they're not idiots. So when when you were examining the um the uh, bicycle bubble, you tried to fit a few theories as to what was explaining what was going on. Maybe could you bring us through that? Yeah, sure. So 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 I looked at two theories. There were a couple of main competing theories as to why bubbles and technology are, are linked. So one of these was by Carlo de Perez, and she basically argued maybe what most of us would intuitively think, which is essentially that. Technology leads to financial bubbles because people get very excited about the new technology. You get uh, high initial profits at existing technology firms, and this attracts momentum traders. 
And, and you get what she would call a decoupling between share prices and fundamentals. So uh, at a certain point, you, you know, you, you get an initial uh, rise in prices, which makes sense because it's based on, um, you know, the, the, the high profits at these firms. Uh, but at a certain point, like the, the excitement and the the momentum trading that the, the, these high profits attract uh, cause prices to rise by too much, essentially. Essentially, they overshoot the, the, the true value. Right, okay. Um, so so the, the, that's Perez's explanation. Uh, and then the other explanation was by uh, Pastor and Veronese to uh, Lubus Pastor and uh, Pietro Veronese, who are two economists at the University of Chicago. And they're much more within the efficient markets school, um, as you expect from uh, at the University of Chicago. Uh, and they argue that what looks like a bubble is actually sort of a trick or an artifact. So what they argue is happening is that no one is sure that the new technology involved is going to be widely adopted or not. And this uncertainty, so this uncertainty affects cash flows, which people are very aware of. You don't know how profitable these firms are going to be in the future. But it also affects the discount rate, because if the technology is widely adopted, shares associated with the new technology asset uh, will lose their idiosyncratic risk benefits. So, so if you think of, say, technology firms in the 90s, uh, they tended to be disconnected from all of your other investments. They, they weren't closely correlated with what was happening in the wider economy. And this makes them very valuable. So it's sort of valuable above and beyond the amount of money they can give you because they have like, major diversification benefits. What happens uh, as the technology starts to become widely adopted in this um, Pastor and Veronese model, uh, as the technology becomes widely adopted, uh, the first thing you see is positive cash flow news. So more and more people are using the technology. This causes the price of shares to rise um, because there's positive cash flow news. The existing firms are making a lot of money. But what you see after that, as the uh, technology becomes even more widely adopted after that, it starts to become integrated within the wider economy. And whenever it becomes integrated within the wider economy, it loses the this idiosyncratic risk benefit, where its, um, it, its returns start to become more correlated with the, the, the returns on all of the other assets in the economy. Uh, and as a result, this causes the price to fall. So you get uh, a rise in prices for you know, positive because of positive cash flow news, and then you get a fall in prices because of you know, negative news about the, the discount rate, about how correlated the the, the returns are going to be with uh, the, all of your other investments. So, so those are, those are the two theories. And uh, what what I do in my paper is look at the bicycle mania, which is a, a technological. Um, it is a technologically driven bubble. And what I uh, show, what I argue in the paper is that um, the problem with the, the, the two theories, so, so you had these two competing theories, they're both basically consistent with all of the evidence, which one you believe depends on your prior. So uh, academic financial economists have a strong prior in favor of market efficiency. Mm. So they're more inclined to believe Pastor and Veronese. Whereas a lot of practitioners, so practitioners, generally speaking, if they believed in efficient markets, they wouldn't be practitioners. Right. Yeah. Um, so they would tend to have 
we'd be much more willing to buy into this idea that markets sometimes the price is wrong, and they're a, a lot more sympathetic towards Perez. Very, very generally speaking, of, of mm. course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so, so it really sort of like which one you choose to ex- accept would largely depend on your priors and how you view financial markets generally. Um, what I tried to, to argue was that the the, the British bicycle mania is sort of a, an argument by counterexample. Pastor and Veronese's argument uh, doesn't apply, or, or that you can get a technological bubble in which these dynamics um, identified by Pastor and Veronese don't occur. And the reason for this is that, well, basically, if you look at the level of idiosyncratic risk in the, the bicycle um, share market at this time, it doesn't change. So uh, in the past and Bernice model, this sort of fall in prices after the peak is caused by how correlated uh, the returns on the, on the shares are with all of your other investments. Yeah. Um, but uh, in the cycle mania, the, the media just doesn't change. So uh, you have this sort of boom and bust in a new, like in a new technology industry, in which we we can sort of rule out this, uh, these Pastor and Veronese dynamics, right? Okay. Uh, and as I say, that this this is a sort of counterexample. So you know, if you have a situation where the, there's a, a boom and bust, uh, and this theory you can pretty clearly say doesn't apply, um, it suggests that the main factor. Is probably something else. Okay, so another thing you touched on in your paper was a lot of the dynamics at play that sort of uh, accelerated the bubble effect during the British bicycle bubble. And one thing that came into play was short selling. So before we get into the dynamics around the short selling, maybe you could, for those who haven't seen the big short, maybe explain what exactly short selling is. Yeah, uh, big short's a great movie. I love, I love the big short. Um, it's sort of a catch-all term for the various ways in which you bet um, bet against the stock, bet, bet that the price of a, an asset is going to fall. Yeah. Um, so there, there are a few ways that you can, you can do this. The most common way in modern markets is to um, borrow the stock and then sell it. So uh, the, the idea is that you, know, you borrow it and, and you sell the borrowed stock, uh, and then you wait for the price to fall, and whenever the price falls, you, you buy it back. And then you know, give it give it back to whoever you you borrowed from. Okay, so um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of steps involved. You borrow it, you sell it, you wait for the price to fall, you buy it back, and then you give it back to the person you borrowed from. Exactly, yeah, um, and that, that that's how it works. In most of the time, that's how it works in um, in modern markets. You, you can also do what we would call naked short selling, essentially like a forward contract. You just just enter into an agreement. Without borrowing the stock, you just enter into an agreement to sell a share that you don't own at a specified price, at a specified date in the future. Um, and you, you know you haven't borrowed the stock in, in this example. You've just uh, entered into an agreement. It's a lot of risk. Yeah, there's a lot of risk involved. It's, it's, it's generally much riskier. Um, but at the time of the bicycle mania, uh, this was how short selling was done. Okay, so you so basically you you made a you entered into agreement to sell it at some date in the future. You haven't got the stock. You haven't you haven't bought 
whatever it is you agreed to sell. And in the meantime, you have to procure that item and you are you're exposed to whatever the price is going to be whenever you have to right, buy it. Exactly, yeah. When you when you when you start, you're assuming okay, well, I'll I'll get it at a reasonable price, but that's not always the case. The price can go up as well as down, uh, and your, your your theoretical losses are unlimited. Um, so it's uh, you know you're in, in a bubble. One one of the things people like about a bubble, and something that that actually Pastor and Vernici argue in another paper, is that um, one of the main appeals of dot com stock, and one of the reasons why dot com stock was so high, was because your theoretical gains are unlimited. You know, something could be the next Microsoft or Amazon yeah. as an example. Whereas the losses are set at the price of the share. You just buy a share, which might not be very uh, might not be very expensive and might be very affordable to lose that amount of money. And so you've got this sort of upside potential with low downside risk. Sure. Whereas whenever you short sell, and especially if you're short selling, you know, in a new technology firm, it's the opposite. You can lose just literally everything just bankrupt yourself um whereas the you know the, the upside gains are quite limited yeah absolutely um so that's good advice for anybody who wants to short sell the market at the moment if they're talking thinking about <laughs> coronavirus and yeah. how it might affect the market but um okay so short selling then how did that play out when it comes to the the bicycle mania so in the bicycle mania, British stock markets at this time, uh, you had essentially two lists or, or sort of two sections of the stock market. There was the official list, which was heavily regulated, right. uh, and you had the, the 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 special settlement list, which was not, which was almost completely unregulated. And sort of modern theory, uh, we would tend to assume that it's easier to short sell on uh, an unregulated market. Because you know, short selling tends to be subject to a lot of restrictions and like investor protection regulations, and in some markets it's just banned. But what we actually saw during during the cycle mania was that that this lack of regulation tended to work against short sellers. And the reason for this was because there were uh, market corners. Cornering the market uh, is, is that something that most people would be familiar with, or is this something? Maybe we could go into it. If you if you have a, a quick uh, explainer, yeah, I get cornering the market. Um, it, it's essentially just buying up a, a controlling stake, it was similar to a monopoly. Like there, there was a there was a, a James Bond villain in, in Quantum of Solace who you know, cornered the market for like a, a Bolivian water supply. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> which was you know not one of the most exciting um, Bond villain schemes, but they're running short of ideas when the now that the Cold War has has ended, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, your classic Bond villains plot to like like blow up the moon or something, but now they just um, we're, we're going to corner the Bolivian water supply. Um, so you've cornered the market. Basically, you have you you can set your price. You you have the supply. You can control the supply of whatever the good or service is, and you can essentially set your price. Then exactly right. So um, in, in a financial market, this generally applies to. Short selling. So you short sell a stock and someone hears that you've short sold the stock and they buy up a controlling stake in it. And then when your contract comes due at the end of the, the, the short selling period, you go and buy the, the, the stock from this person who's engineered a corner, who has a controlling stake. 
Uh, and as you say, they can essentially name the price. So it's just another reason why short selling can be very risky um, in an environment where corners can happen. And then they do still happen today, just very rarely. So a Volkswagen stock um, was cornered about 10 or 15 years ago. And um, this led to Volkswagen briefly becoming the, the most expensive or the, the largest company in the world um, because the price was risen so high. Okay, so how how exactly would you would you corner a stock in the modern scenario? Yeah, you, you, essentially by controlling the stakes. So just by all or almost all of the shares. You're going to need very deep pockets to do this in a large company. It's much more common in small companies or, or in thinly traded companies. It's much much more. It was much more common historically. American stock markets in, in the 19th century were notorious for a, a lot of people trying to engineer corners. Even though it wasn't usually very profitable, it didn't usually work very well, but I think it was just a lot of fun. Um, so a lot of these stock market operators would try, try to engineer a corner. So this happened in the bicycle boom in that you had these short sellers. Now, correct me if I get this wrong. So they're, they're expecting the price to go down. So they're, they're going to short. They're going to promise to sell at yep. a future date. They haven't, they haven't bought the stock so it's as you say it's a naked uh, short sell uh-huh then all of a sudden they're, they're reaching this point where okay i have to sell i have to sell this to somebody now and i don't have something so i have to go to the market to buy it meanwhile somebody else has bought up all the shares and then they're saying well i'm going to name my price now yes exactly okay um and there was a few occasions where this happened yeah so it, it happens three times and uh, in, in the bicycle mini it happens three times always on the the, the you know the, the thinly regulated um, special settlement um, part of the stock market. Um, so there's one a point where the a company called Tubes America, where um, sh- short sellers get let off the hook because the the we we had to see what happens instead of buying back the, the shares. Sort of say okay, okay, well you know we'll, we'll see if they want to take take us to court to to get this payment back. And while they're waiting, uh, the the company decides to to abort its uh, share issue. The shares essentially, they're all returned to original subscribers and all of the contracts are voided and the short sellers get off the hook. Right. But in the other two corners, the short sellers lose a lot of money. And in one of them, the, the, the short sellers lose a, a, a huge amount of money. Right, okay. It's like, like absolutely enormous losses. And as you say, they were exposed to all this risk of huge losses. and then, But there was a, there was a ceiling on the amount of profits they could make so yeah it really was a, it was a bad bet it was a bad bet so i had this example and um, there was an example that, that, that led to a court case and um this this guy mr hamlin he uh, he short sold the shares of a newly issued company he said he'd done it accidentally that, that he didn't mean to short sell he, he short sold it by mistake um but if, if he had sort of pursued this um strategy uh, and it had worked as planned, uh, he would have earned uh, a profit of 26 points. Um, but there was a corner and they, they, they were, he was forced to buy from a, a market manipulator who had bought up a controlling share in the, in the stocks. Uh, and as a result, his loss was about 2,300 points. The chance of a corner doesn't have to be very large for investors to worry about it. Your uh, worst case scenario is really bad. Just, I suppose, before we wrap up, you covered other booms and busts in your in your um in your book. Is there anything else that maybe strikes you as interesting that what we're talking about? 
I think, I think so, so one of the things we found is like a bubble's not always a bad thing. Um, it's sort of generally very often described with very normative language. You know, you know it's like uh, a, a disaster, and then any time there's a crash, it's sort of um, you get these debates about what 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 people should do to prevent bubbles and and so on. But but we actually found that in more than one of the bubbles, uh, one of which was the bicycle mania, um, you could make a pretty strong case that it had, it was positive. So, so take the, the dot-com bubble, for example. What you get with the dot-com bubble is a lot of money flowing into these really innovative firms, and many of which you know, end up adding a lot to the economy. So, so yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so you think um, where we'd be now in, in isolation with, without some of these firms that were formed during the dot-com bubble and, and without the, the level of the amount of money that they were able to raise because of the dot-com bubble. So the dot-com bubble, if you had a company like Amazon and they... I don't know if they floated during the dot-com bubble, but if they did, then maybe they could get a more capital from the initial the, or the initial public offering. But then the price fell on the secondary market, so they didn't lose out. It was the people who were trading off the back of the value lost out. So therefore, they got more capital and then they could invest and grow because of the bubble. Is that right or wrong? Yeah, I mean, that's the ideal scenario, yes. So... Um... Some companies were sort of um, banking on the need and, and the the ability to raise more capital in the future. So um, there were companies that the share price falls and then they they they, they go bankrupt because they can't raise any more money. Um, but but you do get companies that like, like I say, Amazon share price fell. Um, you could pick up Amazon stock for very very cheap about a year after the dot com bubble. Um, but but the company keeps going, and uh, as we've seen, sort of comes back and uh, does very well in the long term. Yeah, no, it is a very interesting insight, absolutely. Um, and just okay, so maybe we just wrap up on one one question. Um, after talking about booms and busts, and it sort of it it puts a lot more color on for me anyway on, on what, what what constitutes a boom and a bust, and we think about maybe perhaps 2008 and we have is quite clearly something related to more closer to boom and bust than maybe what's happening now in that i'm just saying this for the benefit like people might be comparing well are we facing another recession like what we had in 2008 but the fundamentals are very different and given your discussion of booms and busts it sort of makes that clear i suppose for 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 people yeah so i mean what we have now is just uh, like an external shock um and and we also see a lot of government intervention to prevent share prices from falling. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there are people that argue that we've been in a, a like a bubble in everything uh, as a result of this, um, you know, what started with quantitative easing and now again with um, large scale government guarantees. Sure. Um, in effect, um, but it is i don't think it's the same um i mean so so we don't see so much speculation i don't see um we didn't see it like very wide increase in participation for example um most re- like the most recent example of a of a bubble or a boom and bust um would be probably the, the bitcoin bubble ah. of um 2017 so that, that that was a very um recent example where you did see this um, increase in participation and you know people buying, like admitting they were buying because 
the price was going up, just, just a pure speculative trading strategy. Yeah. Um, whereas what we see now, I mean, we see a crash, but that's because there's bad news. Um, it's a sort Absolutely. of like uh, these companies aren't going to be making much money for a while. So um, the share price falls down. Um, no, that, that is, it is really interesting, actually. And the, yeah, the Bitcoin one is definitely... Anyone I know who's, who's invested in Bitcoin was definitely speculative. I don't know anybody who or, or gambled in Bitcoin, to, to be more... Uh, to be, I, I think... Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, you have true believers as well. You know, people that are like, this is the money of the future, and that's why they own it. And they just sort of buy it and hold it and expect that one day we'll all use Bitcoin instead of dollars and pounds. But... Um, I, I do think most people were sort of doing it for a bit yeah. of crack, you know, essentially. <laughs> exactly. uh, as one of my one of my students said when I asked why why he'd invested in Bitcoin. Yeah, no, I think I think that sums it up nicely. Um, all right, well, uh, I think we've covered everything. That was really interesting. Um, filled in a lot of gaps when it comes to understanding and then some interesting stories. So, uh, thanks a million. All right, yeah, thank, th- th- thanks, thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.